This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good evening. You're listening to 3RRR 102.7 FM. This is Plato's Cave. We do film criticism at this time every week on a Monday night. My name is Thomas Cordwell. We have a full cave tonight. Hello, Tara Judah, Josh Nelson and Cerise Howard. We're going to begin tonight by prowling the streets of Los Angeles with Jake Gyllenhaal, a psychopath who has discovered he has a brilliant aptitude as a career in filming trauma and selling the footage to news outlets in the film Nightcrawler. We're then going to go back to 1930s North Carolina to join a pair of newlyweds, played by Jennifer Lawrence and Bradley Cooper, who are trying to make a life for themselves in the timber industry in the shadow of the Great Depression and their own less-than-noble act. This is in the film Serena. And then finally, we're going to join Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss, who play a couple attempting to rekindle their marriage during a weekend away under some very strange circumstances. In the film, the one I love. But let's begin with Nightcrawler. Yes, let's. The directorial debut of writer-director Dan Gilroy. He is one of many Gilroys, or Gilroys perhaps. Um, we, we, we were debating before we started whether Jake is a Gyllenhaal or Gyllenhaal. Um, never mind that. Writer-director Dan Gilroy is, direct, is, is joined on this by his brother, Tony, as producer, who himself is a writer-director, Michael Clayton. And Dan's own twin brother, editor John Gilroy, is also in the mix. Never mind that his wife also is in one of the main roles. Renaud Russo is uh, married to the writer-director. It's all very curious, all very incestuous. I'm sure it's all above board. That's by the by. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is Lewis Bloom, a psychopath on the make. At, at the beginning of this film, he's, he's doing it pretty tough. He's resorting to petty crime, trying to break into a, a rail yard, steal some copper... Um, but we soon get the measure of the man. He's very resourceful, but he also tends to do things by rote. He follows scripts, things he has learnt online, wisdom he has received through the uh, perhaps not terribly authoritative or reliable uh, sources that can be found online in the form of corporate self-help guides. But nonetheless, he is uh, extremely persistent um, and uh, how much this is uh, part satire on the American way and the capitalist dream and how much it is a portrait of a psychopath or possibly mm, someone on the Asperger's autism spectrum there is Do, do you think he's a psychopath? I would have said well, sociopath. Well, well. Seems pretty much in, in control of his faculties, even though, I mean, his behaviour is maybe not what we would kind of... He does lose it at one point. Tellingly, in front of a mirror, these people yeah. always lose it in front of mirrors. There's, don't there's they, actually they just... a small difference, but the, one of the key points I thought is the psychopath is more prone to violence, and the film opens with him committing an act of violence, which to me signals he's more on the psychopath than sociopath side. Mm. I would have put my vote on sociopath with borderline tendencies towards psychosis. Okay. How's that, how's that well, diagnosis? The doctor good. has spoken. Thanks, Dr. Well, he is certainly drawn. We should say, actually, none of us are qualified to make this call either. I think it's probably an important statement. And but it's a film, not a real person we're yeah. diagnosing here. But one of us is a psychopath. <laughs> <laughs> Which one? Um, a question to <laughs> linger for the ages. Yeah. Anywho, uh, so Lewis Bloom is... Uh, he, he becomes, uh, at first, uh, sort of doing it on a very low budget, uh, just becoming an ambulance-chasing newsman, trying to get 
to the scene, beat the police even to the scene and get some footage, sell it to a TV station. He's, he very astutely picks one that's struggling, uh, where Rene Russo's character, Nina Romina, um, is, calls the shots. And she fairly quickly and rather disturbingly falls under his sway and mm. sees things his way, which is especially creepy knowing that uh, Rene Russo is actually the director's wife. It kind of creeped me out when I found that out after the fact. Um, she seems to find him somehow charming uh, in that he brings her a very compelling but rather ethically compromised footage of horrible things and horrible things that, to increasing degrees, he has no qualms about engineering or at least... Uh, yeah, there's no, no, no um, qualms at all, no compunction about messing with crime scenes. Now, it's a very stylish film. It's quite a funny film. Somehow, in spite of him being either socio or psychopathic, he is, there's, I, I found myself empathising with Lewis to some degree. It's, I think, a, a testament to a terrific performance from Jake Gyllenhaal that, in a way, kind of want him to win. I, I kind of sort of rooted for him a bit. Um, I don't know what that says about me necessarily, mm. but I think we are supposed to side with him. I think that's the idea. We're, we're as complicit as he are and all the people who watch that footage and yeah. who make the news channel money from airing that footage. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, you might also feel a little for his offsider, uh, poor Rick, played by Riz Ahmed, um, who I'm mostly familiar with from Four Lions, uh, who, who just falls under his spell, gets one of, one of the you know, most... Uh, humorous job interview scenes in a film of any time recently uh, Rick quickly falls uh, it becomes his sidekick really and um, I think we're right to fear for the worst for poor Rick uh, pretty early on in the piece as, as things escalate in the quest for ratings and maybe a very peculiar form of love yeah, I'm surprised that, that um, everyone seems to have uh, got on side with Lou, because I didn't. <laughs> um, I have to say, I, I can see that there is an enticement there and that he is posited as charismatic so that we do have um, perhaps some alignment with him. But because we do see him do things that, you know, if we want to put them in a banner of wrong or bad or whatever you want to call it. Kind of I, th- I think random acts of violence um, against innocent strangers is okay to call that wrong. Well, so, at least slightly unethical. <laughs> yeah, things in the kind of moral really bad side so i i would yeah violence against strangers i think is pretty (laughs) definitively wrong they this is why i'm surprised at you all because that happens very early on in the film so we do in the film very cleverly endears us to him on all these other kind of grossly voyeuristic ways we we know he's a horrible person and we were encouraged to very much follow him and be interested in him like we would against the film narrative yeah it's make-believe and we know that and that's part of the fun because we voyeuristically it wasn't (laughs) make-believe i am aware that it's a fiction film a documentary. Jeez. <laughs> I just, I'm surprised though that people would be um, so aligned with him because I do think that he is very much posited very early on as a character that um, we're not supposed to really empathise with or sympathise with. There's a reason why he is existing in an outside way. Um, the only thing I think that probably puts us maybe in having some sort of understanding or empathy for him is that his situation of not being able to get a job through the kind of traditional means has meant that he has perhaps fallen into the the kind of life of crime that he has that's not really explained it's left open so i think there's like a potential gap there where you can perhaps see that maybe the circumstance have led to his um i guess downfall in a sense or at least into the the way in which he's had to teach himself things from online he gets his education not traditionally because he obviously hasn't had the funds to go through traditional schools um the 
The sidekick character, though, is certainly, I think, the most interesting character in the film and the one that I think we are supposed to align ourselves more with because essentially they're both in the same position. Neither of them have the ability to get a real job. They're in the middle of a depression, essentially, or recession in America. Um, It's very difficult to find legitimate work and whatever is going is whatever they will go for. The difference, of course, is that he doesn't have the kind of confidence, assurity, um, or I guess, you know, kind of uh, socio-psychopathic behaviour that Lou does. So he's not as able to take advantage of capitalism in quite the same way and he's trying to stay ethical um, and, 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 t- and then I guess I think that's the only character that where that turns later in the film is probably what I found the most interesting Yeah, I think Rick definitely is the or he certainly becomes, as you mentioned, the moral compass of the film, particularly towards the end and it's based on, on the choices that he makes in relation to the capital opportunities that are presented to him later on in the film and how he responds to them and I think that's an interesting, that, that shift of identification from the Gyllenhaal character to to Rick as the film goes along because early on in this film I was really reminded of the king of comedy it felt like that obsessive stalker type character who seems sort of socially awkward or I mean there's there's something wonderfully inhuman about Gyllenhaal's performance in this this wide eyes like the, the lack of blinking reminded me of a kind of a cyborg almost and even the deadpan delivery he he, ush, he most of his dialogue is uttered with a kind of monotonous sort of style rhetoric that you'd expect from someone like Anthony Robbins this sort of self-help guru this sort of self-actualization, this kind of the wonder of the capital system. But the way in which he performs that is so deadening and, and he is like a character who is dead inside and his eyes perform that. And the fact that he's so wonderfully gaunt in this film as well, I mean, I think it's a really, really remarkable performance. Um, but the thing that I, I appreciated, one of the things that struck me was the way in which the social critique in here works on three levels. It works on the kind of the obvious level of tabloid press and the lack of ethics in journalism more broadly perhaps, but also cinema, the way he manipulates crime scenes in order to maximise emotional uh, effect when he's holding a camera. I mean, that's a sort of self-reflexive gesture. But more than that, the whole arc of the narrative is driven towards the construction on the establishment of a corporation. And here you have kind of capitalism critique. And I thought that it managed to do all those three things really tightly without feeling like they're at odds with each other? Yeah, very much so. I think you sort of nailed all the, all the, all the major things I got from this film too, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Um, and it, look, he isn't a sympathetic or empathetic character. I don't want to give the impression I think that, but I think he's fascinating and we do follow him. And like, he reminded me a little bit of Patrick Bateman as well, an American psycho, another character you just get morbidly fascinated with, even though he's so repugnant. Uh, well, Travis Bickle is the other character I yeah. kept on thinking of in relation to him, especially since he seems to have no one seems to have ever really taught him any basic ethics or, or morality. He seems to have learned everything through through nonsense media. Where you know, just like Travis Bickle has learned about sexuality from porn films, you know, this character has learned about how to treat human beings from online business courses. And you know, I think it's really strategic. The film opens with him committing an act of violence, so that every time we do start to become intrigued or invested in him, you get that shot of the watch on his wrist, which he's stolen from the security guard, who could be dead for all we know. Um, it constantly reminds us that you are complicit in following this character and being morbidly fascinated by what he does. And, yeah, look, it's, it's a really... I mean, I think it's very blunt, but it's a very effective and savage critique of the state of news media at the moment. Um, and it doesn't feel like extreme satire 
either. I mean, it doesn't feel like it's predicting where the news might be in a few years. It feels right now. Where stories that aren't actually newsworthy, they're just kind of revelling in the misery and suffering of other people, is being turned into news. And like I said, there are you know, people are watching this stuff, so therefore the news channels are putting it on, and therefore the news channels are paying people to shoot this stuff. That's why he exists. Maybe that's what's really disturbing about this film. A character like this, who is so such a dangerous um, uh, person, blends so seamlessly into society now. Yeah, it does feel a bit like a, a 21st century LA counterpart to Taxi Driver in New York and uh, it does have a, a lot of, of the, the now, the, the, the fear-mongering by way of shooting up ratings or, or politicking, let's say, in Australia for example, right now. It has uh, he's really intriguing how he's a mix of um, learning th- he's learnt a lot by rote online but he's also extremely calculating and we do learn that he has grasped that the way to get the big money from the station which is connected to the big ratings is through ethnic profiling of crime and and through fear-mongering about what happens to people even in nice neighbourhoods and it's uh, it's pretty savvy. <laughs> he's told quite explicitly yeah, yeah, we want stories from nice neighbourhoods to yeah. ramp up the fear. Yeah, so he's, uh, yeah, he's, he's smart and uh, look, I, I'd, I'd be fascinated if there were ever a sequel in the offing to this. I think there's, there's more to be um, milked out of this character if ever uh, he could... Um, Nightcrawler 2 crawl harder. Yeah, well uh, if ever he could bulk down again because I actually <laughs> just saw a photo of him from his next film where he's bulked up again hugely to play some um, ripped, um, is it a boxer maybe? So, uh, the, the, the new film is yeah, shooting is called Southpaw and it's yeah. been doing the rounds today, a, a comparison photo of him in Nightcrawler and Southpaw and it's actually quite disturbing how dramatically he's changed his body. Which again gives it a little bit of a taxi driver connection. The two films would be interesting in, in tandem. Uh, I mean, De Niro was at, at the height of his transformative era around that time yeah. when from one character to another his body and his body language shifted dramatically. It wasn't Raging Bull De Niro, but Taxi Drive De Niro was still a pretty fascinating-looking human being. And, uh, yeah, you know, look, I think it's a, it's a strong film. I'm sure Dan Gilroy and the Gilroy clan will be busy for years to come. And Renee Russo, I thought, was really great in, in a small role, and so was Bill Paxton. We don't see enough Bill Paxton in cinema these days. I'm probably the only one who has that opinion. <laughs> Do you know, I mentioned that last week on The Breakfasters, and it inspired a ridiculously huge and ongoing debate about the worthiness of Bill Paxton. I, I don't want to indulge in that now. Um, I, one of the things I loved about Renee Russo is there was something very sinister going on with her character in relation to him, and the film is so clever in not showing us that, just hinting at what it could be. And I found that far more troubling and upsetting Definitely. Yeah, they showed anything. Just got one last little note to perhaps end this on. That this is a, a weird throwback to a, a trend in the 90s uh, of, of having faux internet. Uh, there's this search engine that he uses that isn't one, and it comes up with a URL that makes no sense whatsoever. It just says HTTP, you know, uh, double backslash, uh, search something. Why is this? I mean, we're kind of beyond that by now, aren't we? Aren't we? I don't know. It's so some marketing department doesn't have to put up a fake website. Yeah. It's like phone numbers used to always have 555 in them in cinema. Yeah, but I think yeah. generally anyone trying to really get that authenticity happening does at least, you know, they have to make some deal with a devil sued or another. by Google or Yahoo if they use their, you know, intellectual property. Yeah, but it's just, it's, it's just struck me as weird. <laughs> it's a weird film in, in all the best ways, I think. This is Nightcrawler. Uh, I think we all liked it, even though it sparked a lot of debate about what he's actually going on under the surface of this film. Three, triple, ah. 
here on Plato's Cave with Thomas, Tara, Josh and Cerise. And it's over to Tara now. We're going to look at the new Susan Beer film, Serena. Yeah, this is uh, actually was originally set to be directed by Darren Aronofsky, starring Angelina Jolie, which would have been an entirely different movie. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah. I can't um, even imagine that. <laughs> it's, it's difficult to imagine given what we have, because this is um, very much, I think, uh, clearly directed by a female. This film has in- inserted into pretty much every frame a, a very female gaze, particularly um, in the way that she l- looks at and posits the central character, Serena, played by Jennifer Lawrence. Um, and Jennifer Lawrence plays opposite Bradley Cooper in this film. Um, and the, the storyline I'm not so interested in, but basically uh, he is a very wealthy man, but he is in financial difficulty. He has some mortgages and some troubles with his partner. They get married and he doesn't necessarily tell her all of the details about that. And um, he's involved in logging what they want to turn into a kind of national park. And so there's problems with him and his partners, problems with him and the sheriff. Um, There's also the added issue of lots of the men are dying during the work. It's very unsafe. This is Depression era, so it's not, you know, up to kind of OHS codes of today. Uh, There's lots of issues, things like rattlesnakes. There's, uh, you know, accidents in terms of the actual logging and the way in which they're doing it, um, you know, just mishaps kind of happening all over the place. So we, we see this very early on, some very brutal problems in the kind of construction of, of what they're doing. And the way that that sets up is the, the kind of death of these people for what he wants to build, what he wants to have for himself and what he then brings Serena into and what she wants very much too. And they have this, this shared vision of um, a very pure life together and there's this constant reference to this very beautiful, pure forestry in Brazil that they will eventually move on to once they've finished clearing where they are. Um, and, and I love the way that this film, very subtly, it's not the main issue of the film, but just brings in that idea of this is how capitalism works. People literally die because somebody wants a vision and a dream of their own uh, ideal of the American way of life at this you know particular time. That's one of the first things that comes about. The other thing that really struck me immediately was how gorgeous the scenery in this film is. Um, just sweeping landscapes the smoky mountains are just this kind of mystical place what's curious though is that there's also a czech co-production and i think that not all of it is the actual smoky mountains no all of it is shot in the czech republic (laughs) yeah which was curious when the credits rolled and you get to the end and you think hang on a minute i thought i was looking at the beautiful smoky mountains and they did well with all the time it was just outside of prague (laughs) wow Um, yeah beautiful beautiful scenery though and very much um i think captures you and and ties you up in the myth even if you know you you think it's the smoky mountains it looks like it could be. Uh, but there's also this constant threat of a predator in the in the background as well. There's this mythical panther that um, George Pemberton is trying to, to track down, to stalk and to shoot. And this panther is uh, uh, something that's recurring, comes up again and again in, in the thematics of the film and, and is very important towards the end of the film. Um, this is, I mean, you know, very kind of corny symbolism in a way. This is, you know, the, the concept of capitalism is a predator, the, their relationship is constantly under threat, there's something lurking out there that must be conquered it's also a a question of his masculinity um and also the the sense of something that is without that is that is wild and that you can't control being able to take away what you have um and that's essentially what happens to this couple is there's a traumatic event which takes away the thing that they believe they're kind of resting on their happiness um it's curious that one thing after another kind of comes in and constantly takes away from them what they think could give them happiness um ultimately this is kind of like a you know a, a problem of the 
human condition thinking that that there is there is a right way for there to be happiness when in actual fact there's sort of no clear recipe and they're, they're also in a sense in this film set up to constantly have that that fear of of um of tragedy around the corner i mean we even get a character who believes in prophecy and who sort of says that everything will play out in a certain way so there's a lot of myth mythical things going on here but ultimately i think this is a really feminist film i think that this film speaks to the female experience and um i think jennifer lawrence does a great job of showing different modes of what her motivations are and also how she is affected um by the things that go on in her fight for a place in a man's world Interesting. I found it very much a Republican feminist film or a Gone with the Wind style feminist film because these are characters who are clearly aligned as being fairly exploitive capitalists who are are killing the men who are working on their land and fighting the government who wants to turn this into a national park. And I think the film is very much saying that actually... (laughs) okay, so they're not quite as full-on as the lead character of Nightcrawler, but these are characters who I don't think we will traditionally situate as the good people but we are fascinated by them and we want to follow them because they are the protagonists they're at the center of the narrative but i think they're identified as people who do the wrong thing they will kill to get their way they will bribe to get their way they will cause amazing environmental destruction to get their way and and yeah i mean the serena character i thought was a bit of a sarah palin who sort of to become a, a strong woman had to take on like um what's her name in gone with the wind what is her name Scarlet. Yeah, I mean, in Gone with the Wind, that looks at, uh, you know, the idea that to become a tough, independent woman is to become completely ruthless, cold and brutal. And I thought that was what they were doing with Serena as well. That was showing that's how she coped, by being just as ruthless and, and, and cruel and manipulative as her husband. And the two made a really good pairing. So that's, that's what I mean when I say it's kind of Republican feminism. And yet it all sort of breaks apart when there's a threat to her immediate family, um, which sort of reduces her to having that, that, you know, that there's one function that if she can't perform that, she falls apart and becomes delirious mess who incites a serial killer to go on a rampage um, so I, I wasn't too sure exactly what the what, what the politics of this film was maybe uh, the best I could say is I felt it was, was, was muddled and I think part of that is also the bizarre mix of what felt like quite a good historical piece with then those bizarre mythical elements that crept in more and more towards the end the stuff with the panther felt like a scene from the grey you know it gets very kind of Liam Neeson facing off the wolves with the panther and I got the symbolism but I thought the kind of the eagle being imported into the area to snatch up the snakes kind of fulfilled that symbolism and then to get him hunting the panther was a bit bit overkill and, and we do have you know the, the, the Reese Fans character who becomes something of the Terminator or, or the Lance Hendrickson character from Dead Man. But the eagle is paired with her which is a key thing but yeah. that's a really curious pairing so her, this is her way of uh, Im- impressing uh, the men, the men folk, uh, that she is uh, that she can be masculine for all of the feminine trappings she adopts, and she's extremely feminine. Her nails, bright red mm-hmm. throughout, which again pairs her with the talons of the eagle. Uh, that she gains mastery over this bird is a, is a key way of her making a, a dent there make, uh, and winning the men over. But she's also paired in some very strange ways with other elemental forces, in particular fire, which has wiped out her family earlier on. And in one really weird throwaway line, when we first see her, and there's a bit of male gaze here definitely, when uh, Bradley Cooper, Mr Pemberton's eyes her, uh, his perspective, well, immediately decides she's going to, he's, she's going to be his wife, and there she is bouncing about on, on horseback. Um, 
that she's referred to as an aborigine. That word is really very peculiar in this context. Uh, but again, trying to suggest that she's an elemental force who probably cannot really be tamed and no alarm bells. Um, but the, her relationship to fire will be a, something that's always, you know, is going to crop up again at some point. So that it's really weird that the way that she is, um, she is paired with the natural world for, for better and and for worse. And I think that that's quite muddled as well. Um, that she seems to be able to harness it, but is also perhaps out of her depth. Tara. Well, actually, I think that um, the idea that she can't be tamed is because she is the tamer as it were rather she you know she fancies herself as being i mean we see her on horseback she is you know mastered an animal that is the first shot we have of her somebody wants her but she is already at the helm of a you know another creature it is sort of her in in that kind of hot seat um and the the eagle is incredibly important the fact that she imports it and brings it in and that she shows the men that she she is able to train it but also that it is a way in which she's showing that she can minimize the the kind of which is you know a fallacy but that she could minimize the casualties of capitalism as if she could stop and prevent some of the needless deaths that are happening and that's the figure that she sort of comes to represent even though that's not what happens and that's not who she is um that's certainly what she kind of symbolically stands for at that point in the film um i think she's a very uh, duplicitous and complex character but i actually think that that's a really works very well in this film that she is not one-dimensional it's nice to see a complex woman who has many different sides and i'm not saying that i'm on board with everything that serena does but I think that um, she certainly brings something into that space. And, and you're right about things like her nails, but even her costume. I mean, she, you know, she's got a, a bright red, you know, kind of jacket that matches her nails. And she wears these incredible chemises with, you know, lace detail out into the woods when, when they're logging. You know, she's out in the midst of things, still wearing these beautiful garments. She's never... Uh, underdressed even when she's you know involved in labor or kind of supervising the men or on horseback she's she's always immaculate it is part of the the kind of totality of who she is which i think yeah is very complex character and the eagle of course does swoop down and grab snakes um i still think there's something similar that was really facetious i apologize i do see a lot of parallels with gone with the wind which is for these characters what happens to the characters over the course of the film is the male character increasingly becomes more sort of temperate and, and and moral and ethical and tries to do the right thing where the female character i think becomes more extreme and, and hard um look i don't know I, I do feel there's some muddling going on here i'm going to give suzanne b the benefit of the doubt because she's a sensational filmmaker what i suspect has happened with this film is it's been cut to pieces somewhere along the line this feels like it should be a longer film and there are some weird cuts and for me i felt it really jumped from some scenes very quickly and we missed whole chunks of character development i I don't normally say this but i wish this film was twice as long i wish this film was a sort of deadwood style miniseries in many ways i think there's enormous richness in this text and i think the running time of this film is too small to give the complexity uh justice well the dialogue the the leads were given doesn't give the complexity of the themes explored justice at all there are some extremely uh gormless lines very matter of fact i i am carrying your child within me i think she says at one point or something like that you know just very i love you lots of i love you uh just it's very uh there's not any depth or nuance to many of those lines and there's nothing the actors could really do with them i think other than you know so uh, but 
interestingly, aesthetically, it's it's fascinating that she, uh, Suzanne Beer, loves extreme, not quite extreme, but very close-up mm-hmm. bodies in motion. You know, she's got constantly um, not just faces but body parts and often with the camera just drifting across them, just sort of exploring them. Uh, occasionally slightly voyeuristically perhaps but not overly so but it's just a, an interesting aesthetic choice given that and i haven't actually seen the film but there was something that you said at the very beginning tara that i'm curious about um and you said it's clearly a, a female director has a female eye what is it about this film that distinguishes that from well i mean i'm, I'm just interested in this, this maybe this is sidetracking the whole thing but the idea of there being a style which is essentialist to a female or a male, in, at least in the context of Serena. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, that's a, a hard question to answer in I a know. couple of minutes. But I do think that there there is a gaze that is different, and I'm and I'm not necessarily referring to kind of Laura Mulvey's male gaze here. I don't necessarily mean in the way that it fetishizes and cuts up the female body, and that this just gives us long shots because it doesn't. You know, Suzanne has close ups and and various other styles of um, of camera work as well. So it's it's not in that formalist sense in kind of the traditional way. I just mean in terms terms of the way in which she and I think that you know if I had enough time to go into this I actually think Jennifer Lawrence kind of defies a male gaze anyway and that's the story for another time but the way in which we we see the kind of physicality of her in the frame um, it's to do with the framing it's also to do with the kind of screen time that the female character gets um it's it's there's certainly more screen time and not necessarily in an objectifying way more in a kind of empathetic way in a way that is exploring um more into the character and gives her time to act you know in, in a way that I, I think a lot of male male directed films of this ilk probably wouldn't um that's that's a short Get version it. of the answer though <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. The One I Love is a film directed by Charlie McDowell, who I recently discovered is the offspring of Mary Steenburgen and Malcolm McDowell. There's a, a jaw dropper for you. Now, Mary Steenburgen now direct now with Ted Danson, Ted Danson who right, appears at the very beginning right, of this okay, film. Suddenly makes sense. Um, and actually, Mary Steenburgen appears in a vocal cameo, if you want to call it that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so this film opens in a therapy office with Ted Danson. There's a married uh, couple, Mark Duplass. And Elizabeth Moss. Thank you very much from Mad Men. <laughs> and they are struggling. They're trying to recapture the kind of sense of happiness that they had earlier in their relationship. And they resolve through his advice to go to a weekend retreat, which turns out to have a guest house. Now they go there, and this is where talking about this film becomes interesting because on the first night there, one of them ventures to the guest house and has an experience with what they think is their partner, and then returns to the house. And this creates a a kind of a a conflict within the relationship as to what did or didn't happen. And they've been drinking and they've been smoking. So there's kind of um, extenuating circumstances around the relationship and what may or may not have happened. What I find fascinating, I think this is a really enjoyable film and the two lead performances, I I love Elizabeth Moss and Marc Duplass anyway, but I think this is a really interesting film uh, in, in terms of 
a, a romantic drama that also plays with issues of the double and, and the doppelganger. And as as one of the characters rightly points out and references the Twilight Zone, I mean, this could be romantic drama as a Twilight Zone episode, really. Mm. And it's fascinating the way it plays with it or it resituates a relationship film in the context of almost a, a I guess, almost a sci-fi concept, but with playing with projection and spectral presences and, and what is actually going on in these in this guest house that you know becomes almost like a space not unlike uh, Tarkovsky's Stalker. This idea of there's a space in which there seems to be this idealized other, which in this case is the their 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 other, the husband or wife, depending on the context of the scene. And I find the way in which this film starts to explore this and develops it really really fascinating. It's a really really curious way of looking at issues of trust and fidelity within a, a relationship. And I think some of it applies to I, I suppose the in quotation marks normal relationships you would have and some are very and some are very specific to the very unusual scenario that the film creates i um i actually saw jake wilson who reviewed this compared it to the infinite man which is a parallel i thought of as well because you've got a similar situation in fact where you've got a couple who had a beautiful Meeting and you know early in their relationship everything was glorious and they're trying to recreate the past. I mean this is how the film begins. They're trying to recreate the moment they fell in love and obviously that doesn't work. So they need to look further and they need to look to the future. And in both films we have the couples going into a very peculiar scenario um, where that confronting the future happens in a very strange and abstract way. I mean, this film basically has a horror film scenario that's not played for scares. I mean, the idea of the doppelganger is often something that causes extraordinary extraordinary amounts of anxiety uh, about personal identity. And what it's used for in this film is to, to, to look at the, the mechanics of, of, of a relationship that's obviously been put under, put under strain. Um, and it just, yeah, it raises some really interesting moral questions. I mean, one, one of the big aspects of what's gone wrong with their relationship is the Mark Plus character has done something, and we don't know exactly what it is, and he won't talk about it, he won't confront it, but because of this bizarre scenario, the Elizabeth Moss character now has a chance to get the information from him, even though it's not technically coming from him. So who is behaving ethically and correctly in this scenario? Yeah, it, I really like this film, but um, it, it, it's curious to me that um, there's so much surrounding whether or not we can talk about what happens in the house. Because when I first saw this at Tribeca, I basically resolved never to speak about the film because it seemed pointless because they said you weren't allowed to say what happens when they go into the house. Which, which is in is, the first 15 is minutes. It, exactly. Yeah. The, the inter- film is about that. Is, well, it's the premise yeah. of yeah. the film. So, that you know, I mean, it's like not talking about the premise. And I don't think that it gives away what the film is then about later. And, Absolutely You not. know, there are, there are lots of surprises in the narrative. Um, both of these actors, I think, do an incredible job uh, performing as versions of themselves. I, I mean, it, it is like there are four people in this film. Mm-hmm. The, yeah. the, it's remarkable when you think that there's not. Um, and the way in which they must have been able to kind of get that energy from, in some scenes, themselves, because they're not necessarily always reacting to each other. And apparently they improvise a lot in this film. I don't know how you improvise in a film like this. That's remarkable. It's yeah, the, the performances are incredibly strong, and the premise is great. It is like a Twilight Zone episode, except more, it's more upbeat and kind of you know light in terms of its content. But there's something great going on in, in the sense that, that while there's something that's just not explained, they, you know, they kind of let themselves off the hook with this very early on. So for anyone who likes their nerdy primer explanations, you're not going to get it in this film. You don't ever get an explanation. And one of the characters that does at one point to say, sometimes things just don't mean anything. <laughs> 
<laughs> and sometimes you're just looking for meaning where there isn't any. So there's no point in... You sure that wasn't Facebook <laughs> feedback for us? There's just no point in looking for meaning in this film. There's no meaning, it's just a lot of fun. Um, and I think that ambiguity is perfect for a film like this. When mm. you're dealing with uh, a relationship under stress, I mean, you could read what happens in the guest house and these projected doubles as something quite literal, as other physical beings, or as some sort of phantasmic presence, like a projected image. And that's actually one of the things I really enjoyed about this, because we've seen so many films that centre around male characters, you know, surprise, surprise, um, that are about, like, the ego ideal or the projected, you know, ego image. You know, films like Facebook or Secret Window, and it's all about that interiority of the male psyche and that kind of split personality. I mean, you know, Jekyll and Hyde, you could go back, we could keep going back and back. But here it's about the relationship, and, and both characters, both the husband and the wife, have that sense of the projected split, if, if you want to interpret the film, at least on that level. And I thought that was fascinating, that both characters get that sense of the idealised version of themselves. And, you know, one of the kind of uh, understandings of relationships and, and otherness is that we're not in relationships for what they can complement us. It's about what they, you know, that this idea of we seek out someone who is the projected version of our own sort of fantasies and they have to fulfil that. So it's not about two people coming together. It's about me finding someone who, who satisfies my own personal fantasy of my projected other. And I think this film really lends itself to that kind of interpretation. It does, and it's also a, a wonderful playoff in, in sense of... Uh who is holding on to what because at at any given time one of them is extremely critical of the other for what the other one is either doing or not doing but in a sense they both do the same thing they just do it in different ways and they do it in a way that upsets the other you know and there's kind of this this inevitable problem of having seeing the behavior that you don't like of yourself in another person and that like you said kind of projecting onto that and having this issue of basically having to face yourself and essentially that's what the film kind of comes down to is this this uh question of you know you if you're going to hold on to something that perhaps you shouldn't then you really need to look at who you are Yes, absolutely. Where I, I'm curious to know what you, th- without giving anything away, what you both felt about the ending. Because I agree with you, the film for the most part doesn't give you any explanations, and I loved it because of that. I felt in the last ten or fifteen minutes, though, they started to start, they started to unpack what was going on and offer sort of ideas about what this scenario could be all about. There's a very, very visual. Um, clue to what's going on in this bizarre retreat which I found broke the spell a little bit. I found the more they tried to explain to us rationally what was going on in this scenario the more the film started to lose me ever so slightly at the end. I still really enjoyed it and and, and these two are just such fabulous performers. I mean for the most part the only people on screen are Mark Duplass and Elizabeth Moss Um, so it's just, I was about to say it's a two-hander but it's more of a four-hander because because of the, the bizarre doubling thing we've got going but yeah, I, I did lose a little bit of my love of the film when it started over-explaining things at the end. I like the ending because I think that there's still a lot to puzzle over afterwards. Um, there, there's Certainly, yeah. many questions that are left open and I think that a lot of that is still very interpretive and that you don't necessarily have to buy that as what they offer as the final 
explanation. Yeah, the, the very ending I love, and when you think about the permutations of what may or may not have taken place, I think that's really interesting in light of what these doubles represent for those very those two characters. But yeah, you're right, Thomas. The one the one very minor, I guess, reservation I had was that image I'm presuming you're talking about, where we see something which appears quite literal and maybe pushes the narrative closer towards a, a more traditional sci-fi sort of Twilight Zone moment, if you want to call it that. And I, I guess I kind of thought that was maybe being a little bit too obvious, you know. Well, it's a really lo-fi film, so it was a pity when a special effect happened. And in fact, I've been watching a lot of 1960s Doctor Who recently, and it's the kind of special effect you might get in a 1960s Doctor Who story. So that threw me um, ever so slightly. But um, look, not enough to dismiss this film at all. I, I thought it was really, really interesting. And I think it, it, it's curious that the film by reputation has kind of encouraged an environment of not talking too much about what it's all about. Which I think is stupid because why would you silly. go see it if you don't know that there's something interesting going on in it if no one's allowed to say that there is? Yeah, well, it's not, it's not, a, it's not a romantic comedy and, and you might actually get the wrong impression from this film if you go into it without knowing. Yeah. In fact, the person I saw it with asked me, is this going to be a horror film? Because the scenario did feel quite creepy and it would be, be a shame that people who don't like horror miss out on this film because it certainly isn't a horror film. I mean, the poster art, if you look at it and think about it for two seconds, actually gives you the entire scenario of the film, which is quite fun. And the other thing is, I think there are strong parallels with this and something like The Infinite Man. I don't know why we can talk about what happens in The Infinite Man and, and not this film. Yeah, I think you nailed it at the start, Tyrell, when you said the whole premise is the guest house and what takes place inside the guest house mm. and the ramifications of that. That's really what the film's about. You're not giving away what happens in the last two acts by mentioning that. Because as you said, Thomas, this happens in the first ten minutes. We start we finding out there's something in the guest house that you know has its kind of you know impl- implications in terms of their relationship. It's also fascinating how many doppelganger films we've had this year. I mentioned mm. well, Infinite Man I think counts as one. The Double, which I love, the Ayawade film. Yeah. Enemy. Enemy, yeah, which I also... Um, I think I mentioned this when I was trying to justify my love of Ayawade as the Double, and I said I'm a sucker for a doppelganger film, and maybe this is no exception to that rule. Uh, look, uh, two thumbs up instead of one for <laughs> doppelganger films. Yeah, it, it is an interesting zeitgeist thing, isn't it, that this idea of the inauthentic other being around there, having our, our own identity, is such a big theme in the age of social media where we do have an idealised self out there. And I don't mean to creep you all out, but all this talk of doubles, while that was going on, I was actually experiencing deja vu. <laughs> so make of that what you will. We had better wrap up this very eerie episode of Plato's Cave right now. I think we've asked more questions than we've answered, which maybe is not a bad thing. But you have been listening to us here in Plato's Cave, Thomas, Tara, Josh and Cerise. If you do want to get in touch and find out a bit more about what we're up to, head over to Facebook or Twitter. You can find us by going to Plato's Cave Film on both those locations. Send us an email, platoscavefilm at gmail.com. Go to the Plato's Cave page on Triple R. You'll get a list of all the films we've reviewed that week and once I get to it and update it and, and the music we've played. So heaps of ways of staying in touch. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.